if you're tired of the standard business and marketing fundamentals, frameworks, and funnels, <laughs> you need a little mischief. Get ready to turn up the volume on the CEO Mischief Maker podcast, where you access conversations with seasoned business owners who have smashed through mindset barriers, innovated the standard boring business and marketing playbooks, and executed future-paced strategies with bleeding-edge tools and tactics to micro-fail their way into massive success and growth. We are Mindset Impact Strategic Catalysts, helping innovative entrepreneurs focus. We are CEO Mischief Makers. Ready to make a little mischief? Hey, 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 CEO Mischief Makers, welcome to the conversation. I get to chat with a pretty cool guy, and I mean really cool guy, that I met several months ago. We're in a mastermind together, Mr. Steve Ryder. Steve, how are you doing today? When you said cool guy, I'm like, who, who, who else is here? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, it's you, dear. <laughs> uh, MK, you're special. You're awesome. I love you. You rock. I love hanging out with you, chatting. So, it's so yeah, fun. It's just so fun. So let's start. Let's start off. Yeah. We need to at least set a kind of a boundary to this whole thing of of who you are and what you do. So let's start there, and then uh, I yeah. know we're going to go some pretty crazy places. So yeah, let us know. Let's see. I live in Colorado Springs. I grew up in Wisconsin, moved out here in August of 97, got an entry-level job at an internationally syndicated radio broadcast that 11 years later was inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame. We beat out Dr. Laura and we beat out the king of radio, Howard Stern, which was pretty epic. <sighs> then left that to go help start what became the largest rollout in radio history and have in 2010, I left because I was doing two daily radio broadcasts with half, half the staff I had at the previous gig to do one. And it was just killing me. And so, uh, yeah, I, I started a, an audio production business and really started to put some effort and time into that once I really recovered from that burnout because that burnout was my last day at Family Talk. I weighed less than when I started my senior year of high school. Oh my goodness. And, and the stress was killing me. I mean, it, it, whenever I get under a lot of stress, the cortisol levels raise and that appetite decreases to the point where if the cortisol levels are too high, the actual smelling of food, the thinking of eating a food, it just, it makes me nauseous. And so, yeah, so that, and then I've got two boys, one just turned 18 a couple of weeks ago. And then the other one is 16 and uh, yeah. I was married for 18 and a half years, and we'll be talking about that journey and the nonprofit that I created to fight for patients' rights. Yeah. Wow. So I got to say, first off, 16 yeah. and 18, you're in that transition time, right? They're, Big time. Uh, they're really, you know, once they start driving, it's over. You're, <laughs> you chase them. They don't chase you anymore. <laughs> oh, exactly. Oh, yeah. But, but you, know, you know this as a parent. You know that yeah. being a parent is just giving those kids a little bit more freedom, a little bit more freedom and keeping some boundaries around them, but letting them start to expand their level of freedom. And so that way, when they go, they can be productive members of society, good citizens yeah. and yeah. a good dad and a good husband and those kinds of things. So yeah, yeah, yeah. fortunately for me, those 15 years that I worked in internationally syndicated radio, 
I would listen to the greatest parenting experts, marriage experts, and we would have, they would have these conversations on there and I'd be editing and be like, oh yeah, I got to think about that. Oh yeah. I got to think about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I really need to start working on, you know, getting the way in which I'll snap at them when I'm tired. I really need to try and work on that. So that way they feel secure and safe in this house. You know, I'm very fortunate in that that's the environment in which I, I worked and I matured and, and really, I mean, my two boys are two of the greatest human beings on the face of the planet. The everyone that I, that is in our lives and meets them, your kids are so good. And I give all the credit to my late wife. That was their mother. That was their mother. But you know, yeah. I, no, I definitely had a little something <laughs> to do with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're boys. They, they got to have a, a male role model no matter what. So oh, yeah. yes, mom, they get all the love and nurturing and all the, yeah. the feminine energy and all that stuff, yeah. the spiritual part, but dad has to, has to give it an example of that physical boundaries and, and roles and all that kind of stuff that they're going to, that they're going to do and trust in themselves and all I, that. Right. I, I used to coach high school football before I became a dad love football. Less so now after the whole concussion thing has come out and brain trauma and what that does. I've, I watch it less just because I understand that right now we don't have a magic bullet to fully recover those brains after concussions. Right. And so, um, but while I was coaching, I, you could see it in those young men, the ones that had a good dad and the ones that didn't have a dad at all. And we're yearning for that. And I really, I really tried to pour a lot of those kids. I call them they're they're now in their mid to late thirties and their parents themselves. And and I I still have for many of them, I still have a voice into their lives and uh, it's, it's, it's a really special thing. Yeah. That's amazing. So, all right. I got to come step back a little bit. And we talked to, yeah. you know, really, this is about mindset, uh, mm-hmm. this first conversation. And we've already started talking about that. You've already, uh, you know, alluded to the parenting mindset and being able to um, yeah. learn from listening. You were obviously an open listener to the conversations that you were helping produce. And you were able to internalize some of those lessons even before yeah. or even during uh, your your journey in parenting. But let's go, you know, being, first off, I, I'm just so amazed you were in the right place at the right time, right? Starting an internship at such a young age and uh, starting to work in a field that was just exploding at the time you started working in that and specifically on a particular show or a couple of shows yeah. that really yeah. went went bonkers. And then taking that and, and going to the next one and bringing your your expertise and knowledge and everything there. And then of course, burning out, but, but tell me, what was that mindset like? What, what kind of mindset shift did you have to have as a very young man to actually be able to uh, take on those roles, those increasingly responsible roles and create the successes with them? So my early career was all about what once I should say once, once I decided that I wanted to be here in Colorado Springs, I moved here in August of 97 for a girl. The job was a secondary thing. Her parents lived here. <laughs> Six weeks after I moved here, she met another guy at school and dumped me. 
God, I did not want to be here at all. I wanted to go to Nashville, Los Angeles, New York, um, Skywalker Sound. I wanted to do bigger and better things because that's that that was just inside of me. I, I knew I wanted to do big things in my career. And I started looking everywhere and no one would even call me up for an interview. And it got to the point where my vice president at Focus, he was going through some personal stuff and I felt like he was taking some of that out on me. And so I was like, screw this. I'm just going to go back to Wisconsin and I'm going to get a local radio job. I just need to get out of here. And even those doors closed. And so once it became apparent that God had me here in Colorado Springs for a reason, it was like, okay, all right, what am I here for? And I decided that I was just going to put my nose to the grindstone and just outwork everyone and not really outwork in terms of number of hours, but I'd always be willing to stay late to work on a broadcast. I'd always, you know, because in, in, at Focus, we would sometimes do timely shows, issues related. So this thing is coming up in California that we, we're going to impinge, infringe on parents' rights. And so we wanted to speak into that to get it killed in California because what happens in California eventually makes it to the nation. And so I was willing to just do whatever. I went above and beyond when it came to the shows that I worked on, tried to get creative with them and just really tried to, I mean, there, there was one point at which I was the technical producer at Weekend Magazine. And I knew that the 50th anniversary of VE and VJ Day the end of World War II were coming up. Yeah. And I was like, I want to do something cool on Weekend Magazine. And I want to interview a whole bunch of World War II vets and people that were there and talk about their experiences and cut it together creatively. And the executive producer of Weekend Magazine and I were kind of talking and, okay, let's, instead of a full show, let's do some segments that we sprinkle on VE, VJ Day. So that way, you know, it's, it's nice five, six, seven minute bite-sized chunks, 10 minutes at most for the listeners. Those things came out marvelously because we had, we, we had an in-house composer. So he, mm -hmm. he made it sound like Saving Private Ryan. And we had sound effects and radio clips from, from the 40s. It was, came together. That's the kind of effort and work I put into my job to, to start just I ultimately started leapfrogging guys that had way more seniority over me. So that just nose to the grindstone, outworking everyone kind of mindset. Then becoming Doc's chief audio engineer. And whenever he would travel, I was usually the one I went with. And I became Doc's guy. And the Doc, Dr. James Dobson was the host. And so whenever you travel, I was usually the one with him. And my identity really started to become wrapped up in being Doc's guy. And once I left family talk, that was all stripped away. And it, and it became this, this thing where I'm burned out. My identity is so wrapped up in being Doc's guy that that's completely gone. Who am I? And, and it really started this for me. It really started this journey of figuring out who am I and what do I want? And I, I was always the guy behind the glass. I was always the guy making sure stuff was getting done. 
When I was at Focus, my VP said that control room is yours. You can kick whoever it, someone's hindering your job. You can kick them out, even the producer of that show. And I, there was one time where the producer was talking really loudly on the phone. And I was like, dude, quiet down or I'm going to kick you out. Quiet down or I'm going to kick you out. John, you have to leave now. He didn't like that. But so to be in this position where all of this is stripped away and the only thing I am is a husband and a father. At this point, I'm not even providing for my family because I'm just getting some unemployment and some odd jobs. So even that provider role was, I felt like I was failing. It was really a shock to me and my system of who am I? What do I want to do? And I kept hearing it over and over. Steve, you need to step up and be more of a voice as opposed to the guy behind the microphone. And so I dabbled in some of that and have been doing more of that, especially after my wife's death. But really for for me, the biggest mindset shift, I think, is just understanding me, who I am, and then just naturally living out of that. And at Focus, we had a board member named Bob Beal. Bob is a coach written lots of business consulting books, just a really, really good guy. He was an original board member that was on the board for 30 plus years, I believe, 31 years. And he wrote this book called Stop Setting Goals. And I was co-hosting a podcast with a friend of mine, Eternal Leadership is the name of it. And Bob said, there are three types of people in the world. You have goal setters, you have problem solvers, That's most of the population, goal setters and problem solvers. But then you have this third one that that is really unique, and they're opportunists. They see an opportunity, and that's what they go to. The idea of setting goals is an anathema to them. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't drive them. And I'm an opportunist. That that is really me. And that's kind of the way that things have happened to me in my career just seeing an opportunity and being going, yeah, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to work on that. And so in this journey of building a business and working on this nonprofit, that's kind of the way I've just, I've, I've really tried to approach things is just, this is who I am. Leave it open to God, the universe, whatever, and say, yeah. all right, what's, what's my opportunity? Where am I going to go? Okay. I see this right here. I'm going to go in this and I'm going to work on this and being secure in myself to understand that you know when people try to push goal setting or whatever on me that nah it's just i'm me yeah yeah that and that i see that shift the way you described it and it sounds like it took a a major change like you talked about first off you know moving to colorado springs and for the girl and the girl's gone. So now what do I do? And you just dive in and do it. And then secondly, okay, now I'm going on this path and I am like full bore giving everything I've got more than everything I've got because it's taking its toll on me. And then finally crashing that. And Nope, I can't do that anymore. And now who am I? And that's usually yeah. that identity crisis. I, I went through it as well. I'm sure I'll go through it again <laughs> as I, as I develop who the heck I am, hopefully yeah. before I die. But, you know, it, it is that identity no. crisis when we, when we wrap up our identity in something external to us and that external is taken away. 
There's yes. no other choice but either to find another external <laughs> or to look inside and go, no, it's about me and who am I? So that kind of takes us through to the next thing. When you say you're an opportunist, you had an, an incredible, incredibly difficult situation with your wife yep. and your deceased wife. And, and did that mindset shift allow you to weather that with this nonprofit on the other side of it? Or did you further enhance that mindset shift through that situation? And start off with what happened yeah. and then answer my question. Yeah. So my wife dealt with health issues nearly our entire marriage. In 2004, she was officially diagnosed with lupus. She started exhibiting some autoimmune issues and she was diagnosed with both lupus and I think rheumatoid arthritis shortly after that. In fact, the day that she was diagnosed with lupus, we found out that she was pregnant with Matthew, our first, and the rheumatologist came to her and said, listen, the type of lupus that you have is going to be very dangerous to you because you have this, if I remember it, it's an anti-cardiophospholipid antibody, and you're going to have pregnancy-induced hypertension. It's going to be a threat to your life. I recommend an abortion. Elizabeth was like, no way, no how. Let's, let's just watch this as close as we can do all the precautions, whatever we need, just to get me through these next nine months. Or really, I think it was eight months, maybe seven yeah. and a half months at that point that she was, that uh, we found out she was pregnant. And sure enough, I mean, I had to give her blood thinner shots. We did numerous emergency room visits. In fact, her blood pressure was so through the roof at about 10 weeks to go that she was hospitalized. And they were watching her there and then they were getting ready to send her back home. But the night before, I believe she was set to come home, she started bleeding a little bit and the nurse came in to check on Matthew's heartbeat and she couldn't find it. And I'm starting to freak out like, no, 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 no. You were just in here recently. This couldn't have gone south that fast. Then she figured out, oh, the bleeding plus the heart rate is the same as Elizabeth. So that's why it was difficult to find the heart rate is slowing down. So the placenta must be abrupting emergency C-section. She went into the, she went in emergency C-section. I only got to watch them pull Matthew out through the scrubbing area. I didn't even have time for me to scrub in. It was so fast. Fast forward, we find out she's pregnant with Caleb and we got with an even better doctor who watched her and he, they were able to hold on in an additional three weeks. And so she would have these occasional hospital visits because of the lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. But with that Matthew one, shortly afterwards, she started complaining of chest pain. And the doctors were always, that's just the lupus, that's just the lupus, that's just the lupus. Well, she had a big lupus flare-up that they were misdiagnosing. It started in 2013 and in early 2014, I mean, she was wasting away. I mean, my, my wife was thin. She was five, six and thin, rarely weighed more than 95, 100 pounds. Wow. And that's thin um, for five, six. Well, yeah. And then factor in that with this lupus flare up that they were misdiagnosing, think it was hormonal and this and that. She wasted away to about 84 pounds, wow. rail thin. So she finally just went up to the best hospital in the state, University of Colorado Hospital. The, Ant the Anschutz campus had, had been built at that point in Aurora, east of, of Denver. They were like, yeah, even 
lupus looks like it's in remission, all the blood markers show it's in remission. We're going to treat it like lupus and just see what happens. And within six hours, she was getting up by herself, going to the bathroom by herself, able to put on her own socks, which is something she really hadn't been able to do in at least two months prior. And so she got better so quickly that that chest pain that she had complained about flared up and she went from having a perfect heart in March of 2014 to a heart that was significantly enlarged and failing congestively in November of 2014. So over the course of six months, her heart went from perfect to significantly enlarged and failing congestively. And it was undiagnosed pulmonary hypertension. And for listeners that don't know what pulmonary hypertension is, it's basically your lungs aren't absorbing the amount of blood that the heart is trying to push in to get it oxygenated. And so that back pressure causes the right side of your heart to enlarge and eventually it fails. So pulmonary hypertension is a death sentence. The only cure as of today is a lung transplant. That's it, which is a massive surgery. The amount of people that have healthy lungs that are available for transplant is very small. And it's a, it's the most, from what I've, from what I've read, it's the most dangerous and complication rife transplant that there is still, while it has gotten significantly better in the 20 plus years, I think, since they've been doing lung transplants, it's still in that very risky category of transplants. And so, so she had a really, really, really complex health record. But she was with the best doctors in the United States, really the best pulmonary team in, in the United States. All the nurses said Dr. Badish, who ran pulmonary at UCH, said he was world-renowned. I have a buddy that did his cardiology residency at UCH, University of Colorado Hospital. And he, he said that pulmonary department was world-renowned back then when he was doing his, his residency back in the 80s. So, yeah. But when she was diagnosed with that pulmonary hypertension, the head of pulmonology, Dr. Badish, came to me and he said, Steve, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but there's a real possibility your wife isn't going to be around to see your youngest graduate school. Caleb was eight at the time. And he was basically saying, hey, in the next 10 years, she could be gone. And he went on to explain that eventually the meds stopped working or because there was a Hickman line then going into her chest, pumping in meds 24-7 to open up her lungs to allow that blood to get in there, that Hickman line presented an infection risk. And so I mentioned this at, at the major mind that we were at in Nashville, the, the meetup that we had in, in Nashville, that that news hit me like a ton of bricks. I always had, had a, an idea that this could be my journey with the lupus, with the rheumatoid arthritis, with the pulmonary hypertension. I knew that that this could be my journey, but I was hoping to make it to 30, 35, 40 years and then end up losing her as opposed to losing her potentially before we hit 20 years. And it, I remember just feeling that emotion and just grieving. And once I got over from that shock and it was a couple of days later, I remember something shifted in my head. And I made the determination that no matter what happens at the end of every day, I was going to look back at the day and say, and ask myself the question, did I love my wife to the best of my ability? And if the answer was no, 
make that conscious intention for the next day to do better because we don't know how long we have here on this earth. Earlier this summer, probably maybe even in the spring, I met a young widow who lost her husband in a car accident. Here she is in her early 30s. She's got a newborn and a two and a half year old. And she's facing life by herself with the help of mom who lives a decent amount away, but close enough that she can come spend a couple nights a week with her. So I knew that I didn't want to have any regrets, no matter whether I had that 10 years, whether I had 20 years, or whether I had just two or three years after that diagnosis. So COVID happens, fast forward, COVID happens. And right at the very beginning in March, I'm in Wisconsin for the boys basketball tournament. It's canceled. And my wife calls me and says, I think I have COVID. Can you come home? Get a flight the next day to come back. And she gets tested. When that test result comes back negative, they still think it's COVID because I'm starting to exhibit some symptoms and they only treat her virtually. This goes on over seven weeks where she's up and down being treated virtually. You can't diagnose pneumonia or a blood infection over a virtual visit. You can't. No. And so uh, she ended up being hospitalized April 29th, I believe it was. She woke up at about three in the morning, throwing up, not even able to keep a sip of Gatorade down. And we knew it was that point she had to go to the hospital. Yeah. And she said that she would have gone into the hospital earlier had they allowed some visitation in, but she just wanted to be home with her boys and wanted to be home with me. And so, yeah, I I figured, okay, I'm going to get COVID tested as well. She got tested as soon as she went to the hospital. It was negative again. I got tested and it was negative. And I thought, sweet, I've got a fresh negative. She's got a fresh negative. I'll get an exemption to be allowed in because I saw the power of us being in the hospital with her 24 seven back when she was in, in 2014, between those two hospital stays, which totaled five weeks, I'd be in the hospital two or three days. Her mom would be in there one or two. And we do this rotation where I'd come home, be with the boys a bit. My mom would fly out from Wisconsin to be with the boys. She'd bring them up. She'd be getting all this different attention between me, her mom and our boys. And she came back in, in late 2014 from, from that situation when she went in with that enlarged heart that was failing congestively where the doctors called it an end of life situation. So I, I thought, yeah, I'll get an exemption. They'll let me in. And, if, and, and I know enough people around the state between politicians and big time power players that they'll let me in. I'll, I'll, I'll be able to get in. It wasn't the case. It wasn't the case. I got to know every single step of the way. Didn't matter that I had my own PPE. Didn't matter that their nurses had taught me how to change her Hickman line and helped reduce that infection rate by more than two thirds. Didn't matter that I'd be willing to pay out of pocket for PPE if they required me to wear a full suit, even a hazmat suit, whatever. Didn't matter. It was always a no. And it was at that point then that I started to get some local media attention, statewide media attention. And it was 21 days that she was there in the hospital. And I was never once allowed in until I got that call on May 19th, 2020. Your wife's gone into cardiac arrest. You need to get up here now. 
So they let you in with cardiac arrest. Yeah, that was the point. So midway through her hospital stay, Mother's Day weekend, 2020, I'm going up to Denver to go pick up my mom. And I thought, what is the lesser of two evils that I can do? Just drive by the hospital because I-225 drives right by that hospital. I mean, from the hospital, you can see 225. And from 225, you can see the hospital. Do I drive there and drive back without any acknowledgement, without talking to her at all? Or can I try something you know, that might encourage her, which is bring the boys up, get up there early, stop at our favorite Euro place, get some Euros, sit outside the hospital, FaceTime with her over dinner, and then wave to her up on the 10th floor and, and let her let her see us. And I thought, hey, this might just encourage her that, that, that we're taking some time out here and waving to her might encourage her. It didn't, MK. It didn't. She got super emotional afterwards that we were yeah. that close and not able to yeah. be in there, that they wouldn't wheel her out for us to be able to give her hugs and some yeah. attention and spend some time. Or even just to, you know, fully mask up and, and, you know, just touch her, hold her hand, whatever, whether it's us go in or her or them just wheel her out to, to an outside cafeteria area for us to, you know, be double mask, triple mask, whatever they wanted, full suit, whatever, and be able to give her that physical touch. Yeah. That night at about, I think it was two in the morning. I got a call. Your wife is bleeding in one of her lungs. We're moving her into the ICU. Don't come up. (laughs) I got a call. Two hours later, we think we've isolated it. It's a couple small arteries. We're cauterizing them now. Don't come up. Had we been allowed to give her that physical touch, spend that time with her, Hold her hand, kiss her, rub her feet, whatever, give her hugs. Would she have started bleeding in one of her lungs? Elizabeth's MO nearly our entire marriage. She gets super emotional. Her health declines. She has something go on. She gets emotional and, and it affects it affects her health. Would she be here? Had we been allowed to touch her? Would, would, would she have started bleeding in one of her lungs? And would my boys still have their mother? Even had her doctor seen her in person before she was hospitalized and really aggressively taken, taken action right. with that developing pneumonia, lung infection. Yeah. Which would her she of still all be people, here? she of all people could not have with the pulmonary yes. issue she already had. Yeah. And, yes. and all, I mean, I, I, I see. So in, in that whole situation, all of your mindset shifts that you've had up until that point of, I'm going to be the best husband I can be. I don't know how long I have. It's not about me. It's about helping her through this. All of that obviously helped you from 2014 to 2020. And then 2020, because that mindset was there and you knew what she needed because you'd, you'd helped her with it before and having all those barriers to not be able to give it for reasons that had nothing to do with the reason she was in the hospital yeah. and, and all of the abilities that you were offering to, to mitigate 
any of those issues that might have presented themselves for the for the hospital's reasons that they wanted it that way. All those questions, I can only imagine, obviously, keep coming up. Like you said, if this would have happened, would she still be here? If this would have happened, would she still be here? But being able to weather that storm and go through that situation and watch that happening with your wife, and then also being there for your boys and her mother and you know every, everybody around you, what did you have to tap into to handle that? And then we're going to talk next about yeah. what the result came after that. Yeah. But what did you have to tap so- into? So I want to say it was during 2014, probably while 2013, 2014, while Elizabeth was declining and with that lupus flare up, that misdiagnosed lupus flare up, I was burning myself out as a caregiver. I really was. And, and there wasn't a shift of, it's not about me. There, there was a shift in me that, no, I need to take time for myself because as I am filled up, I can then serve. I can then do good in the world. I have a saying for my boys whenever I would drop them off at school. I'd ask them, I, I remember hearing this on a broad, something like this on a broadcast, just reminding whenever they leave the house, remind them of who they are. And so I would say, who are you? And they would say, I'm a writer boy. What does that mean? And the response is supposed to be to do good and to be awesome, to do good into the world and to be awesome. And so in in order for me to live that myself, to do good and to be the best me that I can be, I need to be pouring also into me. And I can't be burning myself out, take caring for a sick wife and picking up a lot of the responsibilities that she had around the house and trying to do everything. So for me, that was a massive mindset shift for me in order to really be able to serve her well and really be able to care for her well. Yeah. Yeah. And then be able to care for your boys when, yeah. uh, when that time came and, yeah. you know, try and navigate life without her when, yeah. uh, when she was no longer there. Yeah. Wow. So I I just have to I just have to say every time I've talked to you and I know you've been working on this project this nonprofit that you're going to talk about soon but every time I've talked to you I just feel a strength and a peace and tell me where that comes from does that come from that ability to realize in order to serve you have to to serve yourself first or how how do you manifest that I think I think a big part of it comes from I was born and raised in a Christian home, very legalistic. So it was very rules based, where you couldn't drink, you couldn't smoke, you couldn't even play, you couldn't even play poker. No junior high dances because junior high dance might lead to some kind of sin. But once I once I figured out my own faith and it became mine, I, I would read these scriptures like we are heirs co-heirs with Christ and talk about we are a, a royal priesthood and we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And I, what does that mean? What does that mean? And really it means that from what, what I felt like it means for me is that it also says we are, we're not just servants of God. We are also friends. So much in the religious mindset is about just beating us down and putting us into place. And the real spiritual Christian mindset has to do with 
we are way more powerful and God loves us with this abundant love and pours it into us that we are much more than what we think. And God believes in us and he's cheering for us and he wants the best for us. And so that's, that's really kind of the foundation of, of who I am and where I come from. So that's really, I'd say probably the biggest thing. And then, and then it's just also just all those years of just working on myself, trying to get past some of the negative junk in my past and trying to weed out those bad mindsets and negative self-talk and all of that, all of that inner work. Because there was a point at which after I left working at Family Talk and everything is stripped away, I saw Elizabeth and I saw the incredible human being that she was and how she was on this journey of healing and she was becoming a better person. She was already an incredible person. I mean, she was, she was the most emotionally intelligent person that I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, we rarely fought. We rarely fought. And I learned so much from her. Both, both I and the boys learned so much from her that I saw who she was and I saw the way in which she was loving me during this very, very dark time of being unemployed, feeling like I'm not providing all of that, that something inside of me just clicked and I wanted to be a better husband for her. I wanted to be a better father for her that I started on this journey of inner healing and working on my stuff and yeah, and it's it's something that I've I've continued even after she's passed because I I really want to be a great dad for my boys. I want them to I want them to just not have any ill feelings toward me. I want them to just have nothing but love for me and and I, I don't want anything hindering our relationship. Okay, hold on. If your mindset was shifted, you were inspired to innovate, and you were spurred into action, don't just move on with your day. Focus, my friend, and take a few minutes to visit CEOMischiefMaker.com to learn more about the value that was shared with you today. Please act now and create some CEO mischief of your own.